Okay, good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Thursday night version of the Jewish history class. We'll be on Thursdays through the middle of June, and then we'll be off for the summer. Um, the topic for tonight is the stab in the back legend or the stab in the back myth. Uh, and basically what we're going to examine is accusations against the Jewish people of Germany that were leveled between the middle of 1918 or towards the end of 1918 as the war was ending and the rise of Hitler in 1923. And then we'll talk about Mein Kampf towards the end of tonight's session. So over 100,000 Jews served in the Central Powers forces in the war. A lot of German Jews fought in the armies in World War I. But despite that fact, during the war in 1916, accusations were made that Jews were shirking their military responsibility, whether by dodging the draft altogether or by taking cushy positions behind, well behind uh, the front lines, not out as a forward observer in the front. So anti-Semitism emerged as a force to be reckoned with during the war, uh, and it was only going to continue at the conclusion of the war because that side lost. Had that side won, maybe it would have dis- dissipated. But if you're already blaming them an ethnic minority when things are okay, then you're going to blame an ethnic minority when things go bad. So not only was accusation of uh, not serving in the, in the army, but also of black market profiteering, of war profiteering, whatever Avera they could accuse the Jews of doing in a military context, that accusation was, was made. So the Judensalung, the census of Jews who participated in the, in the German military, proved the exact opposite of what it was intended to prove. The detractors of the Jews thought, well, we'll catch them. We'll, 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 we'll have the statistics to show that the accusations are in fact true. And they're valid. But what emerged from government data was that the Jews actually were serving disproportionate to their percentage of the population and were being awarded medals and dying on the battlefield uh, in considerable numbers. So that information was suppressed that nobody should know about. Well, then the question is, uh, as the war ended, why was anti-Semitism so rampant? What was happening in Germany that led people to despise the Jews even more? Now, bear in mind, the anti-Semitic movement had been around since 1879, so it's now 40 years old, but it had never attracted the kind of political uh, attention from the masses the way it would at the end of, of, the, of the, the Great War. Did you have hyperinflation because of the war? So we're going to get to hyperinflation. It's going ha- to happen very shortly. So first thing is military defeat. How could we lose? We were the stronger army. Must be something went wrong. And it wasn't the fighters at the front who did something wrong. But someone in the rear guard will have to find some kind of a scapegoat. It's their fault that we lost. And we'll see who are the scapegoats. Also, there's revolution. We'll discuss eventually the fact that there was a communist revolution in Bavaria um, and just as there was a communist revolution in Hungary, and just as there was a communist revolution in what would become the Soviet Union. So these were real problems, and Jews were associated with those various revolutions. So it was easy to target them as, oh, it's your fault. Also, the Treaty of Versailles. The Treaty of Versailles resulted in the loss of territory 
in both the East and the West. In the East, what was lost? So much of East Prussia went, became Poland. Um, and the Polish state, which didn't exist for the previous 130 years, reemerged on the map, being carved out from what had been the old glorious Polish kingdom. But who loses territory? Well, the Russians lost a little territory. The Austrians lost some territory. And the Germans lost a lot of territory. Also in the east, on the west. What did they lose in the west? Asas-Loren. And there were other regions near, near Denmark that they lost. So the loss of territory, you got to blame it on somebody. We'll find a scapegoat. Then there are unsettling social changes, cultural changes. Life isn't going to be exactly the way it was before, even putting aside foreign policy and military issues. And who was the, the harbingers of change, social change? Tend to be the progressive Jews. Okay. Now, the demilitarization of the Rhineland, the relinquishment of Alsace and other territories, war guilt, reparations, all these things make Germans angry that they got shafted, that somehow they were deserving of victory. And not only did victory not happen, there was an embarrassing defeat and a further embarrassing deal uh, post-war to arrange a new European order where they're the low man on the totem pole. So one of the, the uh, most troubling aspects of the Treaty of Versailles from the standpoint of the German patriot, who will then in turn blame it on somebody, was the war guilt clause. Article 231. Not Article 230. That's like Twitter and Facebook. Article 231. Okay. So Article 231 says like this. The allied and associated governments affirm and Germany accepts the responsibility of Germany and her allies for causing all the loss and damage to which the allied and associated governments and their nationals have been subjected as a consequence of the war imposed upon them by the aggression of Germany and her allies. Basically, it's all your fault. And you're, ta- you're admitting that it's all your fault and you're going to pay for some of it. So this is scandalous as far as the German nationalists are concerned. How could we ever accept such a thing? And was it even true? Is it really the case that the, 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 uh, the German side of World War I was entirely guilty and the other side entirely blameless? Uh, that's a debatable point historically. It's probably not really true. It's not like the, this was not the good versus evil along the lines of World War II. So who's going to be blamed? Blame everything on the communists and the Jews, who are arguably one and the same, the Judeo-Bolsheviks. Innovations in art, science, and music are making people uncomfortable, and Jews played prominent roles in all of those endeavors. Jews dominated physics, and the bigots would attack Einstein for introducing quote-unquote Jewish physics into real German science. People were bewildered by modern life, and they longed for return to simpler times, to yesteryear, you know, but the German variety. So specifically, specifically, there is a three-day period in November of 1918, as the war is ending, when the whole world of the German patriot is upended. On November 9th, 1918, Kaiser Wilhelm II abdicated and goes off into an exile uh, elsewhere in Western Europe, 
where he would live out his life until the age until he died in 1941. He lived uh, in, during until after the war, it's like World War II started. Is it coincidental Kristallnacht was targeted for November 9th? Uh, it's not a coincidence, but that's not the primary factor. The, the primary factor was things were building to a crescendo, and Herschel shot von Rath, and then he died. So th- there were other factors in play, but Germany became a republic within hours of the Kaiser abdicating. And the capital was not at Berlin because Berlin was seen as too chaotic. The capital was in Weimar, at least briefly, which is 180 miles away from Berlin. Then two days later, on November 11th, a ceasefire agreement, the 11th hour, the 11th day, blah, blah, blah. So that's the end of World War I. And this agreement is reached by the Republican government, not by the Kaiser's government, and not even by the military, okay, which will be an important consideration. In the peace treaty of, of, of uh, 1919, we have the reparations issue, and anger is growing. So the accusation is that someone stabbed the nation in the back. Germans thought they were willing, winning, only to suddenly realize that they had lost. Why did they think they were winning? Well, the answer is that the censor, the military censor, was not allowing uh, real news to reach the people throughout much of 1918. So whereas the war was a bit of a stalemate and the Germans had done well for themselves between 1914 and early 1918, the tide had been turning with American entry into the war and there was a 100 days campaign. Uh, and so between July or August and November, the Germans were being forced to retreat. But the average Joe on the street, the average Hans on the street didn't know that. They just were, they were totally oblivious. So when all of a sudden there is a ceasefire and it's on unfavorable terms, it sounds like somebody just sold us out. Would, okay. would national pride also suffer because they were forced to disarmament? Yes, that's a big deal. The military was, 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 was furious over that. Not much of one. Not much of one. Now, the classic need for a scapegoat. So adroit politicians could exploit the credulity of the masses and harness them for a certain political objective. The slogan was that the Jews and the Freemasons were the ones who sold out the country. So who's the one who's making this argument? Well, the war hero, General Erich Ludendorff, told Parliament that it wasn't the fighters who lost. It was a combination of the Social Democrats, the Catholic Center Party, and the Jews. And by 1922, he blamed the Jews exclusively. Forget about the Catholics, forget about the Social Democrats. It's all the Jews' fault. Quote, the supreme government of the Jewish people was working hand in hand with France and England. Perhaps it was leading them both. He cited the protocols of the elders of Zion as proof of his point. And then he would say, because the protocols, remember, had been debunked by the Times of London in the summer of 1921. So his response to that is the revelations of the Times cannot touch let alone destroy the genuineness of the protocols. That all the debunking in the world doesn't matter to me. I think it's real. And that's why we lost. So in this stab in the back myth, Germany did not lose the war on the battlefield. It lost because certain unpatriotic categories of citizens on the home front weakened the nation. One aspect of it was, and this was historically true, revolutionary socialists uh, conducted strikes in the summer of 1918, and caused civil unrest. Um, and this, uh, these strikes 
resulted in a diminution in the production of war material. So you could argue, well, we had insufficient armaments because those socialists, those rascals were mishing around in the factory. Also, the blame is on the Republican politicians who overthrew the House of Hohenzollern and they were branded the November criminals, the November criminals. The truth of the matter is that, Jews, that the Germany lost because the United States entered the war and Germany was overwhelmed by military odds of now facing a strong U.S. force that had not suffered in 1914, 15, 16, much of 17, because it hadn't been part of the war. It was a, it was a refreshed force. Um, in fact, all the central powers were falling in October and early November of 1918 and suing for separate peace treaties with the Allies. Germany was the last to surrender, not the first. You look, you look at the map, you'll see all the other central powers, they had thrown in the towel sometime between September 30th and November 3rd. So the fact that the Germans gave up November 11th was far from surprising. Germany was run, the government was run by the Kaiser, by Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg, and by General Ludendorff the general controlling most of the power, and it was a military government. It was no longer a civilian government in the last year of the war. So there was a conspiracy here, but the conspiracy did not involve the Jews. It involved uh, other people who blamed the Jews. So what am I talking about? Ludendorff told von Hindenburg to bring the Republican politicians, and especially the socialists, into the government before the end of the war, so that those parties would have to negotiate the humiliating peace, meaning they knew they were going to lose, so bring in your, your political enemy into the government, make them the guy that has to negotiate the, the bitter pill to swallow, and then after they have to swallow it, say, oh, look, they were traitors, and then kick them out and take the power back again. So unusually, contrary to what is the usual practice, the civilians, rather than the military, negotiated the terms. The citizenry would then be mad at the Republicans, at which point the old monarchists and military men could swoop back into power and correct things. And in fact, it's really what happens, because Weimar Germany lasts for 14 years. And then what happens? The Nazis take power with the help of, the, uh, of a complicit military, of a complicit Wehrmacht, which were filled with mostly old monarchical types, who, although they were not Nazi, they were conservative monarchists, they allowed the, the, the Bohemian Corporal Hitler to, to run wild without stopping it. Now, people uh, were confused. As I said, this, the press had been censored. So you know, how could it be that, uh, that we lost? Must be the November criminals uh, extracted uh, uh, a defeat from the joys of victory. So the stab in the back expression, the expression, not the, the concept, but the expression, those words were born from a 1919 conversation between Ludendorff and British General Neil Malcolm. They were talking about the adversaries in war. A year after the war was over, they were sitting having coffee or tea. Maybe it was, in, it was tea in London. And they were saying, oh, why did we lose? Why did you win? We were stabbed in the back. Even the Social Democrats inadvertently contributed to this idea when they, were, when they praised returning soldiers from the battlefield by saying you were undefeated on the battlefield. Well, if you were undefeated on the battlefield, then why did we lose? Because somebody else is at fault. Hindenburg used the expression in November 1919 in testimony before the Reichstag's Commission on War Guilt. So here, the, the old line politicians are excusing their ineptitude by blaming it on some conspiratorial scheme by Jews and others. 
1919, Alfred Roth wrote The Jew in the Army, <laughs> accusing Jews of being not just that they were uh, shirking their duties, but rather that they were spies and saboteurs. And then in 1922, Alfred Rosenberg, the party theoretician for the Nazis, wrote Zionism, the enemy of the state, accusing Zionists of siding with England because of the, because of the Balfour Declaration. The German Zionists were siding with the other team in the war because of a parochial issue of Zionism. Was that true or was that false? It may have been true in, in certain instances. Certainly after the Balfour Declaration was issued, I'm sure that you know, the leadership of, of German Zionism was, was not keen on having the British lose, or at least not lose in the Middle East. Would the, would the um, charges leveled against the Jews mm. have gotten certain credence because of the result of the Dreyfus trial? So remember, Dreyfus had been already exonerated at that point. But still, he had gone through this uh, yeah, so at it, the end of the 19th century. So it's certainly the case that, uh, that the Dreyfus trial showed a willingness of people to disregard facts and favor the most uh, uh, extreme accusations against the individual Jew and maybe even against the Jewish community as a whole. And to be indifferent to... Uh, emerging facts that are, you know, uh, exculpatory, you know, who cares? I'm not interested in exculpatory facts or evidence. I'm interested in blaming you, uh, right or wrong. Okay, so now, another reason why it was possible to blame the Jews in the early Weimar period, as I said, was the various revolutions. So, Rosa Luxemburg was involved in the Bavarian Soviet Republic. Uh, Bela Kuhn was involved in the Hungarian Soviet Republic. You had prominent members of these revolutionary groups who held certain positions briefly before they were executed or for the, for the shot in the streets. Uh, and they're Jews. So they have nothing to do with Judaism. They're, they're avowed atheists and Marxists. But it was easy to say, hey, look, a Jew, a problem figure, all the Jews are guilty. Okay, so now let's take a look at some of the... Uh, the cartoons, the political cartoons. Remember, a few years back, we did a lot of political cartoons when we did Israeli po- politics. So let's do now a little German politics. So this is a picture of Jewish self-defense organizations defending the honor of Jews in asserting that, yes, we did fight together with the Gentiles and that we did not uh, evade our duties as citizens. So it says, on the Deutschen Mutter, okay, 72,000 Jewish Soldaten in Fridas Vaterland often fell and gefallen. So there were 72,000 soldiers who uh, served the fatherland and some of them fell. Christliche und Jüdische Helden haben gemeinsam gekampft und ruhen gemeinsam in fremden Erde. So 12,000 Juden fielen im Kampf. So 12,000 Jews died in battle. And just as the Goyesha mothers are crying over their, their dead sons, you have the, you know, the, uh, the cross, so too, there are Jewish mothers crying over their dead sons who died on the same battlefield fighting the same war. Okay, then we get to uh, the stab in the back. So here you have a really grotesque political cartoon of the German soldier uh, in the trenches. And you see the, the, the barbed wire in front of him. He's in the trench. And a, a, a nefarious-looking Jew with a Star of David uh, helmet literally taking a knife and stabbing the guy in the back. And the big nose. And the big nose, yes. Uh, and similarly here, you have 
again, the soldier had a, 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 an arm with the Star of David on it, and the knife being thrust right through the back. Okay, but the Jew is not the only one who was blamed along these lines. You do have the same sort of thing uh, here, where the guy doing the stabbing is not necessarily a Jew. He looks like a, a, a communist. I mean, he looks a little bit like Lenin, maybe, if you look carefully with the, with the goatee. But the point is, it's not a Jew, it's just a, a strike manifesto. So it's someone who's a socialist or communist agitator who's stabbing the German officer in the back. Were these on placards or were these in the newspapers? Newspapers and placards. Uh, placards are big in Germany. You know, they put them up on the glass window, you know, and they with the steamroller, and then and then they run away. So, yes, it was in the newspapers and it was on shop windows. Okay. Well, despite the fact that Jews are being blamed for defeat in major war, still the Weimar Constitution gave everyone equal rights, and Jews took advantage and participated in Weimar politics. Anti-Semites were furious. They called it the Jew Republic. Not the Weimar Republic, but the Jew Republic. What's the fact here? The fact of the matter is only four out of 250 people who served as ministers during Weimar were Jews. One of them being Walter Ratnow, who was the foreign minister who was assassinated in 1922. Well, Hitler described the Weimar years as a morass of corruption, degeneracy, national humiliation, ruthless persecution of the honest, quote, national opposition, 14 years of rule by Jews, Marxist, and cultural Bolsheviks. That's a mouthful, but suffice it to say, whatever uh, could go wrong in the eyes of the right-wing nationalists and some far-left nationalists, whatever could go wrong was going wrong. And this, these Weimar years were terrible years, and the wrong people are in power. The wrong people are in power. So Hitler uh, joins the uh, National Socialist German Workers' Party, and his goal is to destroy the Weimar Republic. Political assassination becomes a popular tool, and there were 376 killings between 1919 and 1922. That's a lot of death of uh, public figures, of political personalities with Rattenau being the most significant because the killers thought that he was, quote-unquote, the elder of Zion, that he was the elder. Okay. Big question is, when did Hitler become an anti-Semite? When did it happen? His biography, and there have been many biographies of Hitler, and I, I've tried to read a few of them, but I can never really get through the full biography. It's just too much. And they're always so thick, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages, getting to the, to the minutiae. It's, it's hard to read it. Um, but... What was, when did he become an anti-Semite? Was it early in his life when he was living in Linz in Austria? Was it during the Vienna years listening to Mayor Karl Luger? Or was it only after the war due to the stab in the back myth? And Yeshomrim, it was from Luger in the Vienna years, but there really is not all that much evidence for it. Most likely, Hitler was radicalized by the stab in the back myth of 1918-1919. And very quickly... No, swallowed it whole and became its most uh, vigorous exponent. So, but the population itself had to be ready for this. If they had yeah. all this propaganda for all fourteen years. So, th- the truth of the matter is that the population was ready to dislike Jews in a big way already at the end of the, of the war by 1918, and 
the population would be inclined towards hatred when the economy is bad, like hyperinflation of 1923, and less inclined towards hatred when the economy is good, like in 1927-28. The 20s was a up and down decade uh, in Germany. There were good years, there were bad years. And the, the, the best evidence for it is how did the Nazi party do in parliamentary elections? When the economy stunk, they did well. When the economy was good, they went down. People were less inclined to vote for a, a Vildechaya party when life is pretty stable. Okay, so Hitler hated the Austrian Empire and the Habsburg dynasty. Why? Because it was a racially mixed world. Remember, the Habsburg dynasties, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, has 11 different nationalities with equal rights for everybody. It wasn't perfect, but Jews were emancipated already from 1867, and everybody has cultural rights. There's 11 different uh, official government languages. So the world of of Austria-Hungary has its egalitarian aspects to it. Now, of course, Magyar nationalism will be very parochial, and maybe we'll, maybe we'll touch upon that at another, another time, and that's bad for the Jews. But Austria was more open than the German Empire, which in the eyes of Hitler was the pure, pristine Germany. It's not, not a racially mixed Germany. Of course, it's not really true. There were, were 600,000 Jews, but you know, he could say Germany good, Austria bad. He didn't want to serve in the Austrian army in World War I, despite being an Austrian citizen. So he finagled his way into the Bavarian army, uh, and even though he should not have been allowed to serve. Hitler was injured several times during combat and was blinded by poison gas in the trenches. After the war in 1919, he was retained as an intelligence agent tasked with infiltrating the German Workers' Party. In 1920, the party was renamed the National Socialist German Workers' Party, and he was discharged from the army on March 31st, 1920. After his release from the army, he devoted himself full time to become a big macher in this party. He became its most popular speaker. And in a bit of a coup or an internal party feud where Hitler emerged victorious, he becomes party leader in June of 1921. Well, um, who's involved in this party? So interestingly, there were some white Russian emigres who were involved in the Nazi party, who introduced Hitler to notions of the Jewish conspiracy. Basically, Hitler's awareness of the protocols came from czarist uh, supporters, white Russians, who lost the Russian Civil War, who fled to Central Europe, to Germany. And what was their political agenda? They had a right-wing political agenda of the restoration of the old monarchies the restoration of the Romanovs, the restoration of the Hohenzollerns, maybe even of the Habsburgs. So this is a, a, a monarchist view, and somehow it was able to mix well with, with uh, German socialism, radical socialism of, of, of the Nazi variety. Um, so the Aufbau Vereinigung, the Reconstruction Organization, was a Munich-based counter-revolutionary conspiratorial group formed in the aftermath of the German occupation of Ukraine in 1918. It brought together white Russian emigres and early German Nazis, trying to overthrow both Germany and the Soviet Union, replacing them with authoritarian regimes of the right as opposed to of the left. When Hitler's uh, collaborator, Ludwig Schoenberg Richter, was killed in the Beer Hall push of November 1923, 
part of Mein Kampf was dedicated in his memory. And he was elevated to that of a blood witness and a national hero in, the Nazi, in Nazi Germany starting in 1933. But the Aufbau rapidly declined after 1923 because the Nazi party adopted a view of Lebensraum. Well, Lebensraum means what? That the Russians are going to get squeezed out, that the, that the Slavs are terrible, that the Aryans are, are the be-all and end-all. And so while there was a temporary alignment of interests of Russian rightists and German rightists, now that alignment is, is broken and the, the, the Germans say, well, we'll take over as much of Russia as we feel like and we'll settle all people, are there, our people there and kick you out. So there goes the end of, of that collaboration. Okay, so when did Hitler make his earliest known statement about Jews, uh, a negative statement about Jews? The answer is, it was a letter that he wrote on September 16, 1919, to Adolf Gemlich, known as the Gemlich Letter, in which Hitler argues that the aims of the government must be unshakably the removal of the Jews altogether. Um, and he argues that anti-Semitism should be based upon facts, not upon emotion, and that Jews are a race, not a religious group. So I want to spend some time reading uh, that letter. Just snippets of the letters, about two pages. Okay. So, dear Herr Gemmel, if the threat which Jewry faces our people has given rise to undeniable hostility on the part of a large section of our people, the cause of this hostility must be sought in the clear recognition that Jewry, as such, is deliberately or unwittingly having a pernicious effect upon our nation. So, first off, he says, listen, a lot of people hate Jews. That it's 1919, right after the war, and a large segment of the population really doesn't like Jews. Is that the deranged Hitler talking, or is that him quite reasonably assessing the mood on the street? Probably the latter. It's a reasonable assessment of the mood on the street. But his, his assessment is that, well, the Jews deserve it because they're a pernicious influence. And mostly in personal intercourse, in the poor impression of the Jew makes as an individual. So basically, he doesn't like individual Jew on the street, not the bigger macro picture about Jewish world conspiracy or the, the Judaism as a religion. He's basically starting off the letter saying, average yid on the street, we don't like that guy. He's a jerk. As a result, anti-Semitism far too readily assumes a purely emotional character. But this is not the correct response. Anti-Semitism as a political movement may not and cannot be molded by emotional factors, but only by recognition of the facts. That now the facts are these. And so he goes on to say what his point is, how he assesses the situation. Of course, one man's fact is one man's myth. Um, and he can say all he wants, this is all fact-driven, but you know, he, he is a bit deranged, even then. To begin with, quote, the Jews are unquestionably a race, not a religious community. Why does Hitler say this? So, first off, it's quite likely that he didn't interact with too many religious Jews. That in Vienna, the Jews he saw were probably very acculturated. And then once he got to Germany, also a fairly acculturated uh, bunch. He wasn't necessarily hanging out among pietists. So how are the Jews a united community, if not by acts of religious worship? Well, race, he would argue. The Jew himself never describes himself 
as a Jewish German, a Jewish Pole, or a Jewish American, but always as a German, Polish, or American Jew. Is that true? It's mostly true. It's mostly true. If I were to ask, there, there are 26 people on Zoom right now. Uh, by a show of hands, I'm going to go to the gallery view so I can see all of you. Do you, do you regard yourself as, raise your hand if you regard yourself as an American Jew. American Jew. Raise your hand. Now, do you regard yourself as a Jewish American? Raise your hand. Princess. Okay, so it can go either way. Now, most, most of the time, the Jewish national organizations and your average synagogue and rabbi will say American Jews, American Jewry, American Jewry. The only time I remember a significant organization referring to our community as Jewish Americans was, remember we went to Philadelphia a couple of years back? Okay, in the Philadelphia Museum, they're very careful to say Jewish Americans, not American Jews. And I, I remember I was taken aback by it when we went there. But that's the way they, they, they roll. Okay, so Hitler continues. Jews have never adopted more than the language of the foreign nations in which they, in, in which they, they live. So basically, acculturation is linguistic acculturation alone, but not full acculturation. So a German who is forced to make use of the French language in France, Italian in Italy, Chinese in China, does not thereby become a Frenchman, Italian, or a Chinaman, nor can we call a Jew who happens to live among us, who uses the German language, a German. So language doesn't prove the point. It's only one factor. And yeah, the Jews acculturate in that one factor but not in anything else. I would disagree only because language itself lends to the national character you're, in your mind. You're, you're, you're right. You're right. And plenty of German Jews very sincerely believed that their degree of acculturation did make them proud and real Germans. Okay. Now, neither does the Mosaic faith, however, grade its importance for the preservation of that race, be the sole criterion for deciding who is a Jew and who is not? There is hardly a race in the world whose members belong to a single religion. What is the significance of those last two sentences? Jewish is a race. Well, the very important for the last two sentences is the Mischling, who happened to be Protestant or Catholic, could still be destroyed in Auschwitz. Why? Because it's not the Mosaic faith alone that's going to decide things. I, Adolf Hitler, he's saying get to decide who is a Jew. And it's not by, by professed religion alone. So thousands of people will die in the concentration camps and death camps because of this sentence, that he gets to decide, not your, prof your profession of Mosaic faith. Then, through inbreeding of thousands of years, often in very small circles, the Jew has been able to preserve his race and his racial characteristics much more successfully than most of the numerous peoples among whom he has lived. So you, know, you could take this as a, a, um, a display of admiration on his part towards the Jews. You know, they're very good at preserving themselves. They have cultural practices which make them insular, and therefore they are able to go the door of a door. Now, we would say, good, we want to go the door of a door. We want to have Jewish continuity. He's saying it, well, with a jaundiced eye. You know, they, they're able to preserve themselves. We don't want them to, but they do it. As a result, there lives among us a non-German alien race, unwilling and indeed unable to shed its racial characteristics, its particular feelings, 
thoughts and ambitions. So what he's saying is unable and unwilling. Unwilling, well, the Jew might argue, no, we are willing to, to shed some of our worst features and blend in. But what Hitler is saying is unable. That the Jew has, over the last century and a half of emancipation, shown an inability to rid themselves of their distinct identity. So since it hasn't happened until now, it isn't going to happen ever. And since it isn't going to happen ever, I mean, he might not even want it to happen. So what's the solution? Their removal from society. As opposed to, let's say, a Bolshevik perspective, which would say what? Rob the Jews of their Judaism and they'll become Russians and blend in. Okay. Now, since... uh, Okay. Since even the Jews' feelings are limited to the purely material realm, his thoughts and ambitions are bound to be ever, ever more strongly. They dance around the golden calf, striving for, for all the possessions of the earth. So here again, Mammon is the god of the Jews, that sort of thing. The value of an individual is no longer determined by his character, by the significance of his achievement, but solely by the size of his fortune, his wealth. So the size of your wallet is, makes you a great Jew or a bad Jew in the eyes of Hitler. The greatness of a nation is no longer measured by the sum uh, of its moral and spiritual resources, only by the wealth of its material possessions. So he's denying that the Jews have some moral or spiritual compass. All this results in that mental attitude, that quest for money and the power to protect it, which allowed the Jew to become so unscrupulous in his choice of means, so merciless in their use of ends. So here, the man who would say, that the ends justify the means to commit genocide, is accusing the Jew of using unscrupulous means to gobble up all the mammon, all the money of the world. Okay? They become a leech on their people. A leech. So the parasitism of which the Jews are accused is found right here. The notion that the Jews are a leech on society. Something which we've seen before. We've seen before, but that Nazi propaganda will take to an extreme, that uh, Goebbels and Streicher, we'll talk about them next time, uh, will feed off of this uh, and really convince people that the Jew is incapable of being productive and is just uh, sponging resources. Okay. In democracies, he vies for the favor of the masses, cringes before the majesty of the people, but only recognizes the majesty of money. So here, What Hitler is saying is that the Jew likes democracy because the Jew is able to convince the masses that that he has their interests at heart. That in electoral politics, the Jew will do well, but will do well with a devious uh, end in sight. Uh, We'll skip a little bit here because it's just a repetition. Okay. The result of his work is racial tuberculosis of the nation. Racial tuberculosis. The use of tuberculosis is deliberate. The goal is to convince people that in the literal and metaphorical senses, the Jews are diseased. Remember, on the one hand, low-class Germans might have seen successful Jews as being all high and mighty and uh, uh, arrogantly upper-class. With the, with the tuxedo and the fancy music playing in the parlors of Berlin. But there's also the other image of the Jew, the Eastern European Jew who comes to Germany, 
who's like a, a grubber mensch, who's a, a, a schnarrer, a poor person, who is a diseased individual. So using the word tuberculosis, it helps convince people that Jews are infected physically. Okay, contagious, which means it has to be quarantined and then eliminated altogether. Okay, all this has the following consequences. Purely emotional anti-Semitism finds its final expression in the form of pogroms. Rational anti-Semitism, by contrast, must lead to a systematic and legal struggle against an eradication of the privileges the Jews enjoy over the foreigners living among us. So what does this tell you about the 1930s? That's a it means that the 1933 laws and the 1935 Nuremberg laws will precede Kristallnacht, not the other way around. That the Vildechaya uh, type of anti-Semitism, sort of a Russian anti-Semitism, is pogroms of 1881 followed by May laws, whereas the Nazi approach is, no, laws first, pogroms second, and death camps third. But if you have the laws first, it lends a legitimacy to the uh, to the uh, following. Um... Yes, which is the German way. The German everything has to be legitimated in some fashion. Okay, our final objective, however, must be the total removal of Jews from our midst. Both objectives can only be achieved by the government of national strength, not one of national impotence. So here, he doesn't like Weimar for a variety of reasons, but a further reason is. Solving the Jewish problem is not going to happen under an, inc- an impotent or incompetent regime. Only a chazak, a strong regime, the likes of which he claims he can bring to the people, will be able to solve the Jewish problem. So of the many reasons why he wants Nazism, or it's not even called the Nazi party yet, it's 1919, but his type of governance to replace Weimar, one of the many reasons is we'll solve the Jew issue, others will not solve the Jew issue. A few months ago when we were talking about Martin Luther, yeah. we were saying that it really was a precursor because he was saying the same things. Yeah, absolutely. Him, was there a hiatus between Luther and and Hitler, or was there a just a sub rosa continuation of that attitude for the Jews? So that's a very good question for those at home. The question was, is there a direct continuity between Martin Luther's uh, you know, vituperative language against the Jews and this kind of verbiage from Hitler. Four, 400 years apart, was it direct, direct continuity or was there some hiatus in between? The answer is there was always some anti-Semitism in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. It never went away completely. And the themes, the tropes are hardly ever new. The old tropes get recycled with new packaging but along the way, you have moments when a substantial percentage of the public is okay with Jewish emancipation, meaning between the 1850s and 1870s, I would say a good percentage of the German public was fine with extending the franchise to all citizens, including all Jewish citizens. And it happened. And under Bismarck, okay, people might not have liked Jews, but they recognize that this is a modern state and we can't discriminate. That discrimination is medieval and backward and just is not from modern times. The anti-Semitic movement of Wilhelm Marr and his successors would say, I don't know, even in quote-unquote modern times, there is a place for discriminatory legislation and removing the Jew from aspects of society, but only aspects of society, not genocidal mania. Okay, so now let's go to the rest of the story. Well, political 
violence increased as inflation rose. Riots in the Jewish section of Berlin occurred between November 5 and 7, 1923. And with all the chaos and the unrest, Hitler realizes this is an opportune moment to try to make a move against the government. So the Beer Hall Putsch in Munich occurs on November 8, 1923. It fails, and some people get killed. Hitler gets injured in the shoulder. He gets arrested. Him and Ludendorff uh, uh, together get arrested. Hitler is sentenced to five years in prison. He only ends up serving about nine or ten months. Uh, while in prison, he writes Mein Kampf, or at least volume one of Mein Kampf. And while in prison, he, ter- he realizes that being a goon and trying to you know, have skirmishes in the street is not going to get rid of the Weimar Republic. What's going to get rid of the Weimar Republic? Elections. Elections. An internal move against the, the, the regime by becoming the regime and then just erasing all the safeguards and all the guardrails. So you turn to electoral politics as a means of destroying the system from within and then transforming Germany into a racialist state. Hitler had a tremendous knack for internalizing ideas and facts by reducing them to simple, the simplest formula. And he used that to his advantage in electioneering. He drew a sharp distinction between Aryan, which is all good, and Semite, which is all bad. Hitler did not allow, uh, did not follow the anti-Semitic tradition of attacking Christianity for its indebtedness to Judaism. Nor did, did he disparage the Old Testament as a way of attacking Jews. Had he done so, it's unlikely that Nazism would have been as wildly successful. Remember, there had been anti-Semites who said Christianity is bad because it borrows too much from Judaism, that Jesus was a Jew and Jews are bad, therefore Jesus is bad, therefore Christianity is bad. The Old Testament, the church reveres it, the Old Testament is Jewish garbage. So let's throw it all in the trash. That was an anti-Christian anti-Semitism. Hitler recognizes you can't do that and be successful. Why? Because Europe is a Christian society. If you, if you try to pull that stunt, you'll be, you'll be relegated to the margins. The only way you can have real racialist anti-Semitism is to successfully uh, skirt the issue of Christianity, meaning give it nominal support. You know, you don't have to persecute the, uh, all, the, all the bishops and the, and, and, the, and the pastors as long as they're willing to allow you to do, you know, your, do your thing. But you don't have to trumpet Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That, you know, there's a place for religion, even for, especially for Christianity, but it doesn't really matter to us. We're not going to attack it. We're not going pr- to prop it up. As I understood that, the Christians were next. The Catholics were next after the Jews. So, yes. So it happens to be that the, the, the Catholic Church was a target of the Nazis once they reached power because of an assumption, whether correct or incorrect, that Catholics would be beholden to the Pope and not to the Fuhrer. Uh, I haven't read enough to know whether there's research done about sentiment among German Catholics where their loyalties really uh, were. Was it to their ecclesiastical hierarchy and their church figures or was it to the Fuhrer? But there was always the concern that, uh, by the civil authorities that, hey, they're going to favor the ecclesiasticals. Okay. Now, um, Nazism basically added nothing new to anti-Semitic ideology of the 1920s. Its novelty was the political objective of overthrowing the republic. Nazi electoral fortunes fluctuated. In good economic times, they did poorly. In poor economic times, they did well. Jews simply hoped and prayed that the republic would survive. 
Then the thinking in 1933, when it became inevitable that Hitler would become the chancellor, was that the wielding of government power would force Hitler to moderate his views and actions. That's the classic blunder, to think that power will, uh, uh, governmental power will force uh, erratic people who have said wild things to restrain themselves and govern in a more uh, normal and ordinary fashion. Does it work out that way? Certainly not in Hitler's case. And does it work out that way in general? For the most part, not. Okay, so Mein Kampf, Volume 1, was published in 1925. Volume 2 was published in 1926, and later it became one book with both volumes together. Uh, While in prison, Hitler took many visitors. But later in in his incarceration, he stopped taking visitors. He focused himself exclusively on the writing of the book. He needed it to be a big seller because he owed a lot of money, legal fees for his trial. So the book, which achieved you know, renown later on, or infamy, uh, was really just a way of paying the bills. The original title was supposed to be Four and a Half Years of Struggle Against Lies, Stupidity, and Cowardice. The publisher, however, suggested a much shorter title, Mein Kampf, meaning My Struggle. Had it been a longer title, it wouldn't have done as well. Hitler tells his false version of his early Vienna years and how he came to be an anti-Semite. He claims to have never met a Jew before Vienna and to have been initially dismissive of anti-Semitic propaganda until he realized that it was all true. Okay, so he's, he's saying, yeah, I thought it was crazy. I didn't believe it at first, but it turns out they were all right. He wants to destroy the parliamentary system because he thinks it's full of opportunists, that democracy is all about liars, people tell, tell, telling you one thing to get your vote, but then governing differently. So better to not have democracy at all. All the bad guys in his eyes including the Republicans and the Social Democrats and the Marxists, are all working to advance the interests of a world Jewish conspiracy. Well, Hitler probably did not decide on a full-scale genocide until at the earliest, the mid-1930s. Yet his book does offer some hints of what was to follow. So here's the juiciest of the quotes that all the writers focus on when they want to say, well, what was the earliest evidence of a genocidal intent? The nationalization of our masses will succeed only when, aside from all the positive struggle for the soul of our people, their international poisoners are exterminated. So poisoners exterminated, that sounds very gruesome. And one more quote, if at the beginning of the war and during the war, 12 or 15,000 of these Hebrew corruptors of the nation had been subjected to poison gas, such as has been endured in the field by hundreds of thousands of our best German workers of all classes and professions, then the sacrifices of millions at the front would not have been in vain. In other words, if during the World War I in the early phases, they had gassed to death uh, 10,000, 15,000 Jews who were ruining things from behind the scenes, well, we wouldn't have lost the war, and the hundreds of thousands of, of German soldiers who suffered poison gas attacked in the trenches would not have had that fate. Okay, well, um, Hitler made a lot of money from the sale of the book. Uh, earning 1.2 million Reichsmarks, which is about $6 million by today's standards, uh, before becoming chancellor. So he's a wealthy guy. He owed a lot of money in taxes, which he didn't pay. Uh, and the government was interested in collecting that tax debt. But when he, took, when he became chancellor, it was immediately waived. So he made his money and didn't have to pay out. Five million copies of Mein Kampf were printed before the war. 
and up to 10 million copies were in circulation by war's end, by April of 45. Hitler eventually regretted writing the book, saying that if he had known in 1924 that he would eventually become chancellor, he wouldn't have written it. He called the text Fantasies Behind Bars. Because to, to, if you, I mean, I haven't read all of Mein Kampf. I read, flipped through it over the years. Again, I struggled to read the whole thing. It's not easy. Um, it does have its moments of, of absurdity. Have nothing to do with Judaism necessarily, or Jews, where even uh, Hitler himself, a decade after writing it, would say, well, this makes me look bad. So while he enjoyed making the money off of it, there were aspects of the book that he preferred were not widely read. Now, the copyright after he committed suicide, was a very important issue. Who held the copyright after Hitler died? The answer is... Not even Braun. The state of Bavaria. So the Bavarian state owned the copyright and held it for 70 years as per law. They did not allow a German publication of Mein Kampf so long as they held the copyright. Other... Uh, in other countries and in other languages, the text was translated the world over. By the way, including in Israel, into Hebrew, not the whole book, but selections of Mein Kampf were pu- published in Hebrew in 1992. It was a major controversy at the time, uh, just like you know, the playing of Wagner uh, pieces in, by the Israeli Philharmonic, a controversial issue. So should we publish Mein Kampf? It was done, uh, but not the whole book. So then... On January 1st, 2016, the Bavarian state lost the copyright. It became open domain, public domain, because it was 70 years after the death of the author. Well, what's going to happen then? So should there be a publication in German, in Germany, and in the German language of Mein Kampf? There were two schools of thought, both within German government circles and among Jewish organizations. One approach said, don't publish it. It'll just, if it's out there, Bad people will make use of it for nefarious purposes. The counter argument was, no, no, publish it with a critical edition, with a whole host of footnotes and a thousand page version, so that in academic life, we'll have access to a proper version of the text with all the appropriate uh, nuanced understandings with the footnotes of what each line in the book means and how it had a very bad impact on the course of world events. In other words, nobody would read it. Right, (laughs) right. In other words, some professors would read it, and that's about it, as opposed to a flimsy paperback, which might be spread around among the skinheads. So, yes, it was published, a really thick edition, and it did sell out right away. Who read it? I couldn't tell you, but it sold out. Um, And... In my view, it's probably better that it was published in this fashion rather than either not at all or in an edition which could be used uh, more readily by people who mean us harm. Okay, so let's stop here. And next time, I want to do two things in next week's session. Again, Thursday next week. One is to examine Nazi anti-Semitic legislation from 33 through 39, building up to... Uh, the war years. And I also want to focus on those uh, considerations that prevented a full genocide of the Jews. Meaning, once it was determined, or even before it was determined that the the Nazi regime wanted to commit a whole-scale genocide, 
they sometimes held back in their adverse treatment of the Jewish community of Germany and then of Austria after the Anschluss, and sometimes held back, even during the war years, from killing every last Jew. What were some of those considerations, and they're different as the years go on, between 33 and 45, that would stay their hand on the premise that their real desire was to kill everyone? What stops them? They kill 6 million, 5.8 million, but they wanted to kill more. And something allowed for the rescue of some Jews and just an incomplete genocide. What was that? That's what we're going to find out next week. Okay, everybody stay tuned.